welcome to the Digiday Podcast. My name is Tim Peterson. I am Senior Media Editor at Digiday. And I'm Kaylee Barber, Media Editor at Digiday. So this is a special episode to end the year, um, like we did last year, and to mark our first full calendar year as co-hosts of the podcast. Kaylee and I spoke to some of our colleagues about the year that was in 2021 and the topics and trends that dominated our beats in covering uh, the media and advertising industries. Kaylee, who did you speak to for this episode? So I spoke with our colleague Sarah Guaglioni, who is the media reporter at Digiday, and Max Willens, who is a senior editor of Research and Features at Digiday. And we focused on the publishing beat. So uh, the three of us really focus our coverage there. And we started out by talking about some of our favorite kind of stories and trends that we followed from the year. Um, Sarah really gets into, you know, the modern newsroom and talking about things like burnout and um, why a lot of people ended up leaving the journalism industry this past year. Um, And Max really focused on the future of revenue and some um, things he's seeing in advertisers wanting to really do content-based partnerships versus focusing on things like display. Um, So we get into a lot of different topics in this conversation, and I might have kept them a little longer than they were expecting because it was a really good conversation, but it was a fun one for sure. What about you, Tim? So I spoke with Seb Joseph, who is senior news editor, and Michael Berge, who is senior editor of media buying and planning. And so this was more of a advertiser centric, or you know, talking about the buy side of the industry, advertisers as well as agencies. And so we started off by talking about identity because I don't know that you can talk about advertising in 2021 without talking about identity and all the um, tracking related changes between Apple's um, app tracking transparency feature and everything that Google did and and chose not to do just yet when it comes to third-party cookies in Chrome. Um, but then we also get into Media Palooza, which is, you know, there was just this whole raft of um, big brands changing up their media agency rosters this year, which, you know, Berge's been reporting on. And so we talked about what were the factors underlying all of that um, and what's come out of that and, you know, how agencies are kind of refashioning themselves in some respects as consultancies, which is funny because then Seb has been reporting on how consultancies kind of haven't lived up to their promises of um, being threats to agencies like we would have expected a few years ago. So it's a very nerdy, deep conversation, but uh, it was a lot of fun talking with Bergie and Seb for this one. Amazing. Yeah, I definitely feel like this episode is going to paint a really broad picture of trends in media, advertising, even a little bit of marketing. So thank you to all of our listeners this year. It's been a really fun year. Um, I've really enjoyed working with you, Tim. So looking forward to 2022 as well. Likewise. Absolutely. Thanks for everything, Kayla. Hi, Sarah and Max. Thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. How are you doing? Good. How are you? I am also very good. We both very politely waited for the other to say something. (laughs) Good. Thanks for joining for the end of year podcast. In our section, we're going to talk about media trends, what we are excited about going into 2022 and like our coverage, but then also some trends that we saw in 2021. Um, Just to kind of recap some of the bigger um, stories from the year and how we think that'll lead into next year. Um, I guess to kick it off, I wanted to ask you both, what are some of your favorite stories that you covered in the past year, um, either from how they tie into larger trends or just from your own personal reporting, um, what you found was really exciting. I'll start with Sarah first. What were some stories that you were particularly excited about from the year? Yeah, so the first story that kind of comes to mind um, is one of the pieces that was actually really tough to work on. Um, Maybe one of the toughest stories that I've worked on this year, which was about why people were leaving the journalism industry. Um, You know, basically why people were quitting their jobs, completely turning their backs on the media and, um, you know, pursuing new careers, uh, new hobbies, things like that. And, you know, I think the reason that it really left an impact on me was because um, a lot of the interviews I did were really tough. You know, the pandemic caused a lot of journalists to go through, um, you know, for lack of a better term, um, mental health crises. A few people had, 
you know, breakdowns earlier this year because um, how stressful it was to be a journalist um, during this time, especially the ones who had to cover, you know, um, health and and news about the pandemic and things like that. Um, and so I really enjoyed working on that story because I felt like it was an important story to tell. Um, and it was important, I think, for other people to hear what was happening to, you know, peers in the industry. Um, and, you know, it was nice to see that people weren't afraid to just say, you know, enough is enough. I need to be doing something different, um, even if it's not permanent. You know, some of them talked about maybe one day wanting to return to journalism. Um, but it was nice to hear that people were, you know, prioritizing their mental health and well-being and doing things like, you know, teaching sailing lessons and working at a dog shelter um, and things like that to just, you know, kind of recalibrate. Um, but of course, also needing to continue to work. Yeah, absolutely. Burnout was definitely a huge coverage area for Digiday. Um, I know I did a couple of stories on it as well and what some of the things were going on, you know, in the industry that were leading to burnout. Um, but we can get more into like burnout and kind of those like work life stories a little bit too in this convo. But um, before that, Max, what were some stories that you were very happy to work on or you found very rewarding to work on um, from this past year? Yeah, sure. Um, I think that there were two uh, that I flagged or picked out for different reasons. Um, the first being uh, one that I picked out, I guess, just because it got a lot of pickup. So the big thing w was a pair of stories that I wrote about uh, Amazon and what it's trying to do to kind of make its ad ecosystem more hospitable f uh, for the coming deprecation of cookies. And so the first was a, a scoop that I, I picked up about uh, Amazon planning to launch uh, its own kind of independent identifier that will allow advertisers to effectively track Amazon consumers uh, as they move around, uh, both on the open web and inside of Amazon's increasingly vast kind of media ecosystem, both, you know, inside their own apps, but also in places like IMDb TV, and, uh, you know, I, I picked that one, A, because it sort of illuminates the fact that coverage of the post-cookie landscape was something that Digiday just kind of was all over and has been really all over for the last 18 months or even two years, um, even though we kind of throttled things down. And then the separate story, which didn't get quite as as much pickup, but I thought I think really made me think a lot about kind of where news and media is heading was a a deep dive that I did into Newsbreak's creator program. So I feel like every platform that dares call itself a platform has spent the last year making big investments and big announcements in things that they're doing to help creators. So, you know, big big guaranteed payouts from places like TikTok to uh, Pinterest rolling out, you know, a kind of live stream creator program. Um, but you wouldn't think necessarily of something like Newsbreak, which is basically just like a news aggregator as being in that business, but they, they are in fact in that business and they have spent the last year really trying and you know, mostly not succeeding to to make this a thing. Like they've managed to attract um, several thousand people to participate, but what that pr program is really attempting to do is to sort of create a large decentralized team of kind of independent news contractors to work uh, on producing local news around the country, and that's a really bold, really interesting, but as I kind of dug into in the reporting, really fraught and really, really complicated project. And um, I, I'm really, really interested to see what happens with it next year. I mean, one of the sort of precipitating factors in my writing this story was that they hired this woman named Zana O'Neill, who used to work at Snapchat, to sort of head the program up in earnest that had not been uh, headed up by someone with her kind of experience before. Um, so that those those two were... Uh, really kind of leapt out to me for different reasons. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, just from that, um, I think the focus on local media this past year has been pretty significant as well. Um, we see a lot of um, publishers, like 
obviously the the local newspaper um you know conglomerates that are still focused on what that um what that section of the media industry will look like but there's also like axios um who is on the podcast just i think that episode will be 2 weeks ago when this airs um talking about their local news initiatives and um and then you like look at the creator economy in general like that whole area has been growing i think more from a i guess more well, of an entertainment, entertainment. Stu- right it's more of an entertainment area right you think like youtube you think even tiktok now and like that whole kind of genre of media has been focused on these platforms but it's tying it into local media i think is a very interesting approach and i'm also wondering like how services like Substack or even Subtext kind of play into that as well because I think I saw Substack is um, moving to like the UK and they have a local beat as well. So like there's a lot of kind of, I don't know, convergence of those two trends, would you say? Yep. I think that's right. I mean, what I think is so interesting about it too, I'm, I'm glad you brought up Axios because like I think that they've, they've done a pretty decent job of uh, – you know, breaking some stories and, and developing real news at, at the national level. But, you know, if some people that I follow on Twitter who I guess maybe are skeptical of Axios's local move have been kind of informally sharing what's in the local editions. And it's like mostly aggregated stuff, you know? I mean, local is great when you can just kind of s- swoop in and, and scoop up work that other people are doing um, and, you know make a little bit of money from uh, the aggregating work and, and, you know, connecting with advertisers. But I feel like local just still has so, so many challenges. It's so wild. I mean, you know, we've all been doing this now for for many years. And I, I feel like in a lot of respects, local media's challenges are completely unchanged. And there have been, I mean, there's been a lot of um, consolidation. There's been some some movement by the the biggest folks to get more kind of consumer revenue oriented, but they still are really really behind the eight ball when it comes to like making meaningful money from advertising. You know, building technical, logically advanced product. And I think you know having folks like Axios, like Substack, like Newsbreak in there. It, is all going to help, but there's just still so much left to do. The thing on, and also to your point about entertainment, like even the moves that have been made into local and a lot of the kind of more writerly creator economy things, like it still to me feels mostly like analysis, right? I mean, it's it's people having kind of publishing these long considered, uh, you know, meditations or analyses of what's going on. There isn't a whole lot of like, you know, people pounding the pavement and doing kind of good old-fashioned on-the-ground reporting on Substack. Maybe I'll get an email from them after this publishes, <laughs> being like, here are some examples of that. But uh, that's that's my impression, and that's kind of what's, you know, hit my radar screen to date. Yeah, I think what's also interesting about that, um, you know, about local and, you know, I think what Axios Local is doing, I've covered that, you know, their goals there a bit. Um, and I think, you know, what they're trying to achieve is great um, because it's true. You know, there's so many news deserts um, in the country and and there is definitely a lack of local news coverage. Um, but I think maybe at the end of the day, it's also a staffing issue where a lot of the, you know, local news newsletters that they're coming out with, it's just a handful of people working on them. And I think that's the case with a lot of these, um, you know, media companies trying to sort of disrupt the local news industry and, and coverage of of cities and things like that. It's it's often just a few people trying to produce, you know, an entire newsletter on a on a whole city, right? Uh, you know, it can't be easy. And I think you can do it effectively and well. And I I think they have been doing that. But I also think that you know, I think the probably it's just a lack of people that are being hired and staffed to cover these cities and these topics that affect them. And I think that's really a big issue too, because then you can't hold certain, you know, governments and, and, you know, local 
goings on, you know, if you don't have enough people really on the ground watching these things and and finding the stories in that way too. And I think a lot of that can be attributed to what Max was saying earlier and like the digital transformation and making money from ad revenue and things like that, just being a very slow process. Um, I wrote a story maybe a month or two ago now about um, one of the Google News Initiatives projects, which was getting local papers, um, you know, programmatically set up so like they can sell programmatic ads for, in some cases, the first time. And, you know, it's great to see these like efforts being put in to help these publications finance their journalism and stick around longer. Like a lot of them just couldn't make it in the past couple of years. There's not enough people who know how to sell programmatic ads. There's like one person on those teams who can do that. You know, it's like there is a, a lack of um, being able to grow if you don't have the people who could do it. Um, but I also want to talk about that like digital side of things, right? So like Max, you were talking earlier about getting into finding still, still focusing on third-party cookie solutions and like kind of getting publications national and local alike, trying to get ready for that, um, you know, cookie apocalypse. Like the Google pushed back their deadlines, so there's more time to, I guess, be prepared for that. But I want to talk more about like some of the conversations or maybe solutions out there that you guys have heard about in the past year or, you know, what you think, where are publishers at this point in time? Do you feel like there's a lot of preparedness or do you think there's still a long way to go? Uh, Max, I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. Yeah, sure. It's it's funny. I, I almost flagged uh, one of these as kind of a s- story I was most satisfied with, but I guess it's good to do it here. So one of the things that we've been tracking really closely with the research uh, panel this year has been cookie preparedness and and kind of mindset among publishers. And we the most recent data we got back was from a, a poll that we sent out in the beginning of November. And uh, we actually decided to add a screener question. And so we we managed to pull out, I think it's about 60 responses from people that are working directly on their own company's sort of post-cookie plans. And the thing that emerges when you look at their responses and compare it to what we picked up when we surveyed people in, I think it was June or July, and then you look back again at what they did in April and then in in January, is that there seems to be kind of a playbook in place. Um, And this is true across publishers by revenue size, right? So like, this is true if you're annual revenues are over $100 million, and it's true if your revenues are, you know, under 10. And it seems to be a combination of leaning a lot harder into uh, gathering and cleaning up and organizing your own first-party data and uh, kind of going into battle with or, you know, expecting to test a handful of identifiers, independent identifiers, whether that's, you know, UID 2.0 or Fabric or Verizon's Connect ID or whatever it happens to be, Yahoo's, sorry. And the thing that's interesting to me about this is that there are tons and tons of solutions out there, but there it, it really does seem like there's already just, it's not necessarily winner take all, but the list of kind of maybe viable options has started to shrink considerably. Um, but I think also the main issue for that lots of publishers are, are struggling with is like f- figuring out how they're going to try to make this this situation work for them as the most as it possibly can. Right. So publishers hated the the cookie uh, world because it basically disintermediated them from. You know, the process in, in a major way and and uh, forced them to sort of just take what what they could get. But all of a sudden, and this doesn't apply to all the publishers, but f- to a, a certain select group, all of a sudden they can sort of s- stand up and, and say with a straight face, you know, we have a lo- large audience that we have fairly interesting information and insights about. We have a good deal of insight into how they behave, not just on our properties, but elsewhere. And and so if you know, if you want us to help you reach them not only with messages, but maybe with the ability to buy your products directly, 
Um, if you want to, you know, meet them in real life, assuming that's something we ever get back to doing, you know, regularly on a large scale again, we can help you do that. And uh, that's, you know, that's a, a big change and a big opportunity for some of them. But uh, I think there's still not much certainty that this is going to be a big, big win for publishers overall, I guess. Like, maybe a, a, a slight inch up, but not a huge one. Most of the mm-hmm. money is still going to go to Google and Facebook. I think in the conversations I've had, you get a sense of a lot of optimism from publishers about their first-party solutions. Obviously, they're trying to sell people on it to a degree. But for the longest time, they were kind of cut out of that. Like There was always um, some sort of like middleman operation that bypassed the publishers, and they kind of just got what they could get. Now there is still there's an opportunity for them to be a bigger player, but to your point, um, the three major ones that have like, what is it, like a third or two thirds of the annual ad revenue being spent, Google, Facebook, and um, Amazon, like they're still going to be the winners, um, it seems like at this point. But I do sense some optimism from publishers for sure. Um, but I guess to kind of wrap up this part of the conversation, um, I want to talk about media mergers and acquisitions as well, because that's been a huge kind of conversation um, that we've covered in, at Digiday in the podcast, um, but also like SPACs, uh, huge, huge word, definitely a giant word in the 2021, you know, word bubble, um, if we were to condense all of our writing into into one of those. Um what are your thoughts about the continuation of this M and A trend in 2022? Do you guys feel like we're going to be seeing a lot more of this? Do you think it's going to kind of wind down? Do you think there's going to be more VCs getting involved? What are your thoughts here? I think that what's going to—I I mean, it's definitely going to continue. It seems like there's just so much money and so much. I think also so much interest too from private equity. Uh, both direct and indirect, right? I mean, you have things like recurrent ventures, which I think had a really nice kind of 2021 with respect to their ability to to gather stuff up and kind of get themselves out there a little bit. And um, it'll be interesting to see how much more they look to scoop up. Uh, obviously, the you know gargantuan uh, move that dot dash made to to buy Meredith I thought was was very clever and says a lot about you know kind of how important intent media is is and figures to continue to be but I think you also too you look at kind of a lot of media adjacent uh businesses that are frankly in need of media to kind of you know lower their customer acquisition costs or uh you know kind of do the content marketing that that you know, costs a lot of their ad dollars. And so, you know, I, I feel like it's quite possible that you look at like a DraftKings or a FanDuel, like they've still got giant, giant piles of cash and, you know, doing these tie-ups with, you know, whether it's NBC or Yahoo or, you know, Bleacher Report and and Turner, like that's all, all well and good. But I'm sure they're... You could make the argument that they might, you know, go around and maybe try to gobble up a couple more sports media properties to try to get themselves as direct a, a pipeline to, to audience as humanly possible. That just that seems quite likely. And then you look at lots of other companies that you know sort of style themselves as direct to consumer brands or or maybe like roll ups of direct to consumer brands. Like it would be interesting to watch one of them. S- try to gather up or buy a, you know, maybe like a lifestyle or, you know, fashion website and use that as a a way to just kind of continually promote and, uh, you know, put on the, the, the wares that they're public, they're putting out there. I don't know that that's necessarily like a, you know, no brainer, can't miss success waiting to happen, but I think someone might try it. And I, I think that if done well, it could actually be, a really, really powerful, really, really interesting way forward for for media and and commerce in general and moving forward. And it would it wouldn't shock me if someone tried it next year. I mean, Mel magazine was previously owned by Dollar Shave Club. Um, that was 
um, I forget who they were sold to. Who were they sold to? It was Recurrent Ventures. Yeah. Okay. So Recurrent Ventures. Um, Like, I think in that example, Dollar Shave Club didn't see them as a viable business anymore, but that was a pretty generally successful publication, digital publication. And, you know, someone else saw it as a viable publication. I could see a Glossier maybe doing that um, in the realm of like beauty or lifestyle um, because they've had a a decent kind of like blog content operation in the past. But I am curious to see what other types of brands get into the media game. Others like Away have tried it. Um, I think uh, a mattress company had a magazine at one point. They don't always, you know have a successful start out and they don't always get picked up. But I do think that there is something to be said about this focus of brands wanting to become content creators. And that's one of the stories I wrote this year as well. Um, I think it might've been part of our media briefing, um, but it was about these sports betting companies that were wanting to become content creators. And um, the CMO of, I think it was DraftKings even said we want to become like a publisher. Um, We want to be the ones creating the content. I definitely agree with you, Max, that there's going to be this kind of trend in that direction. Um, Sarah, do you kind of feel similarly? Yeah, I do. I think, um, you know, just going back to recurrent ventures, I'm actually working on a piece about them right now. And I talked to the CEO and he said that they're looking to acquire a new digital company um, every month at least for the first quarter of 2022. So there's definitely going to be a lot of activity from them alone. Um, And I feel like that's the case. uh, You know, that'll be the case for a lot of media companies that are looking to, you know, expand and and grow. Um, And they're, you know, funded by private equity, um, you know, fund. Um, And so, yeah, it seems like there's definitely a lot of money um, going around um, looking to grow these media businesses. And I don't think that's going to slow down. I do think it's going to be interesting to see how the media companies that have gone public are going to do. You know, BuzzFeed, um, they just went public today, I believe. Um, And so, you know, when this podcast comes out, it'll already have been a while. But It is interesting, I think, to see. I think others are going to keep watch on the ones that have gone public and see how it goes. Um, But yeah, I I definitely think a lot of other companies are going to experiment with, um, you know, growing the business by going down these different routes for sure. Last question. It can be a quick one. But what areas of your beats are you excited to continue exploring or grow in the next year? Mine? is blockchain and like NFT coverage personally. Um, But what about you, Sarah? Yeah, I'm going to be looking a lot more into, you know, the modern newsroom. Um, Obviously, the pandemic has affected the way that employees at media companies, where they work, how they work. um, And I think really digging into that and seeing how that changes into 2022 is going to be really interesting as a lot of companies are starting to adopt a more hybrid, you know, uh, workforce and uh, asking people to come to the office. Um, It's not always a smooth transition as we've seen. Um, uh, So, and, and actually that leads me to another thing that I'm going to focus on, which is, um, employee activism, um, I think you could call it, which is, you know, we've seen so much activity with, uh, you know, unions at media companies. Um, Oftentimes they're being very outspoken about what they want from a workplace to feel safe and, um, you know, happy in in their, you know, work-life balance. Um, And I think there's a lot of push and pull between employees and management um, on that topic and and on others. And I think that's just going to continue to be, um, you know, a big area of focus uh, for me. And I think for the industry as well as companies try to figure out how to bring people back into the office, if it's even necessary to bring people back into the office and how to do it smoothly without, um, you know, having unions you know, a lot of backlash really from unions um, about health and safety measures and and things like that. Um, and then, you know, a few other things that I want to focus on, um, you know, the podcast and newsletter businesses at publishers really exploded this year. 
um, you know, podcasts are the hot new thing and have been for a while, but I really think, you know, I've been getting so many pitches and announcements for media companies, you know, launching new podcasts with, you know, um, big name hosts, um, or, you know, focused on very specific storytelling coming out of newsrooms that can be told through, you know, um, a podcast. And I think really the hope there too, is that it goes from being a podcast to, you know, hopefully a TV show or a movie and, you know, being able to license that IP could be a really big area, um, you know, of revenue for, for a publisher. Um, and then of course, newsletters, you know, we talked about Substack, um, earlier in this conversation and, it was interesting how at the beginning of the year, everyone was talking about how Substack was poaching talent, you know, from publishers and and from, you know, the industry. And they were starting their own newsletters because they wanted more independence and freedom. And then, you know, now as we're nearing the end of the year, it's kind of like that's flipped a bit because, you know, publishers like The Atlantic and The New York Times have started their own newsletter programs um, and are bringing, you know, big name talent into those programs and, you know, offering them some of the independence that I think a lot of newsletter writers wanted. Um, but being able to have the backing of, you know, um, a big publication. Um, so that's, that's really interesting. Uh, so we'll see how that all develops next year. Employee retention, licensing IP, all that fun stuff. I'm also eager to keep an eye on that. And what about you, Max? I think there's two for me. Um, I'm also interested in just kind of watching what the 2.0 or 3.0 of all these attempts to kind of cultivate creators and and keep them within the ecosystems of of different larger entities, whether it's a publisher like the New York Times or a you know an ad funded platform like a like a Pinterest or a Snapchat. And I think kind of a complement to this is the the main thing that I'll be, I think, focused on, which is the idea of how all these platforms are trying to incorporate uh, commerce into what they do. There's been, over the last couple of years, this kind of homogenization in lots of respects of all of these platforms. I think the real precipitating event was Facebook just stealing the story format from Snapchat uh, and plugging it into Instagram and it was like this light went off in the eyes of all of the, you know, head product officers of just going, oh, yeah, this is all just ones and zeros. We can do whatever we want. No one cares. And so all of a sudden, you know, everybody had vertical video on their platforms. And now all of a sudden, it seems like in the last, you know, five months, uh, everybody has launched a kind of live stream shopping product of some kind. And... I think we're not too far away from, you know, live uh, affiliate tagging uh, in inside of things like Instagram and inside of things like Snapchat and, and TikTok. And I'm just really, really interested, A, to sort of see, um, you know, how quickly all of these platforms kind of evolve these sides of their products, but also just frankly, like whether there's an appetite for it. I mean... Everybody has sort of treated the idea that live stream shopping is going to become the next great kind of consumer phenomenon as a done deal just because that's what's going on in China. But I just, maybe this is me kind of, you know, allowing too much of my own biases into my thinking, but I, I just don't get it. I don't see it, you know, mm -hmm. like I, I don't care that, you know, some like young winsome person is like, waving this new cool product in my face like that. That's not why I use social platforms. It's not why I follow lots of the kind of influencers that I, f that I do follow. Um, and I just, like, I was thinking about this a little bit. One of the stories I wrote earlier this year was about Amazon Live. And, like, you look at who's in the program right now, and it's it's a really bizarre collection of, like, you know, there's it's not like you can go to, like, you know, live stream shopping influencer graduate school or anything but like you know they've got the the stokes twins in there like selling like rice cookers and it's like i'm sorry like who are you again like why why do i care what you think about this toaster that has like a touch screen in it like what like what why am i'm just gonna put my right. phone down you know like i'm right. putting my phone down <laughs> 
Yeah. Um, anyway, now I'm just I'm rambling, but um, it, the, the the short answer to your question is I'm really interested to watch commerce on platforms and and how consumers adapt to it. Yeah, and I think BuzzFeed is one of the publishers I know of that have experimented on Amazon Live, I believe. But there's this interesting kind of, I I don't know, like Instagram and TikTok are two platforms that I find influence my shopping habits online. Like I do buy things through Instagram and I have bought things because a TikToker has talked about them, but I don't know if the live element of it will influence me in any way, right? Like I think that's going to be a really interesting thing from a user perspective too to watch is like who's actually buying these things and how frequently are they doing it? Um, you know, you have your QVC fanatics and HSN fanatics who've, you know, regularly bought things um, that were on TV and had a really good deal, it seemed, and they bought it that way. You know, that's interesting. Network has that for the like more Gen Z sneakerhead, uh, you know, young millennial audience as well. Um, but I am curious if the broader audience, the broader users of the internet have that same kind of like appetite for buying something because it's displayed to them in that moment. Um, so yeah, I'm also eager to kind of follow that along as well. Yeah. I think that the way, I mean, the, the f- you kind of flagging the, you know, whether live makes it more interesting is I to me the most important interesting piece of it right because like I'm with you like I I've uh, Instagram's ads are frankly really effective um same yeah <laughs> and um but I think that one of the reasons that those work is that th- there's a a real ability to kind of like expertly and like carefully choreograph what you see the minute you swipe up, you know, or, you know, tap through so that from the split second that your eye sees whatever the first um, seconds of that ad in, you know, your story carousel are, you're like, ooh, what is this? But if, you know, if you are hopping into the middle of a live stream of somebody, you know, showing you how like a blender works, and, you know, you hop in and you hear like, <laughs> you know, like, I don't know if that makes me go like, ooh, what's that? You know, like, I definitely want to buy that. And I think that that, uh, I don't know, that to me it seems like a persistent issue that that I, I haven't heard a lot of good solutions for. And so I think you're right that like, because, you know, live is great when you're watching sports or, you know, you're watching news because there's real stakes involved. But if it's just like, you know, act now supplies are running out like uh, to me that's not sufficiently compelling as a you know reason to to lean forward to use you know an overused marketing term yeah because i also feel like isn't a huge thing about when you click to purchase you have to be in the mood to buy something and i feel like with you know ads and social media content they're things that you're seeing kind of on repeat right like those ads continue to come up you continue to see a product come up, you know, some influencers pushing it. So is another influencer that you're following, you know, it's coming up as you're engaging with the content and it's by choice, right? You're logging into the app, you're, you're scrolling, you're doing all that. I feel like one challenge I could see with live is like, are you tuning in because you're in the mood to buy something and you just want to see what it is that, you know, they're saying is really good and you want to purchase because otherwise it's like, I don't think you would tune in unless you wanted to buy something because if you weren't in the mood, why would you watch it? Yeah, it can't really be spontaneous to a degree. You need to at least say like, hey, we're going to be live at 6 p.m. Um, Eastern or whatever to talk about this new launch. And if you're interested, tune in. And that's when you'd get the people, I think, with the appetite to learn more and potentially buy. But even still, I don't know if, depending on what it is, if the like conversion from discovery to to buying it is going to be as seamless as it is in an Instagram ad, for instance. I don't know. It'll be interesting for sure to follow that. I'm eager to see what publishers specifically do with that, not just the platforms. But yeah, I don't know. I think commerce in general is just, it's been a hot area for the past two years, obviously with people shopping at home a lot more. But I'm eager to see what the kind of next iterations of e-commerce are in 2022. Um, beyond live shopping that has to go beyond live shopping, I'm sure. So 
Anyway, that brings us to the end of the media discussion. Thank you so much, guys, for coming on and talking through some of these themes. Yeah, it's been awesome. Thanks so much. Thanks, Kaylee. We'll be right back after this message from our sponsor. All right. It is time to talk about how the money moved around on the marketing side of the industry this year. For that, I'm going to talk with Seb Joseph and Michael Berge, who cover marketing and media buying at Digiday. Seb, Michael, welcome to the podcast. Pleasure. Thanks for having us, Tim. There has not been downtime on for anyone in media buying or buying ads in 2021, though. Um, there's been a lot going on. We had yet another media palooza and then the great resignation. Then then there's been everything that's been going on, the identity and tracking side of things. And I kind of want to start there because as much as that's the nerdiest possible conversation we can be having or start to this conversation, it's also kind of foundational, I would guess, to everything else that's or many of the other things that have been going on with advertisers and their agencies this year. And so, Seb, you've been covering a lot of the big changes in identity and tracking this year between Google planning to deprecate the third-party cookie is still going to, but has obviously extended the deadline. And then Apple with their anti-tracking moves, um, which rolled out in the spring and really played a part in third quarter earnings for a lot of ad sellers, as well as affected a lot of advertisers like Peloton, for example. And so, Seb, at this point, December 2021, what's been kind of the biggest impacts of these tracking changes or even more specifically apple's att yeah it's a big big question uh where to start <laughs> i think the best place kind of maybe is to look at how everything that's kind of happened around identity and tracking across is an additive and serve to highlight kind of how much the market is really sort of starting to coalesce around set of wall gardens right including you know the, but also um and within that wall gardens uh, label, I kind of include sort of premium publishers, future news corp, etc. And then I guess you know coalesce around a set of wall gardens, and then also like you know the open web or app pool of kind of cheaper ad inventory. That's coming through a lot of discussions I'm having with marketers and agency execs at the moment. In so far as like they're seeing stark differences in kind of price, right between wall gardens that have stable kind of ids and and open web players that are you know effectively grappling with you know both the eventual loss of third party kind of cookies but then also the gradual loss of of kind of mobile identifiers needed to put a premium on kind of target targeted users sorry um so kind of that would be the kind of big overarching kind of bellwether but i think you probably see We've probably seen all of that sort of really kind of play out over the last kind of couple of quarters, um, you know, as a result of kind of everything that's happened with ATT, right, insofar as, you know, the idea of more media dollars flowing into wall gardens. Like it took a while for the industry to kind of feel the effects of that shift, right, due to a protracted rollout of, of kind of ATT. But it felt like that changed in the kind of third quarter, you know, effectively that was the first full quarter of ATT being in market. Uh, and you saw sort of several companies mention the sort of privacy safeguard in there in the earnings call for the period, you know, including Peloton, you know, Electronic Arts, for example, both of which, you know, kind of lamented the fact that, you know, they struggled to, to kind of add new subscribers, right, on the back of advertising due to how hard it was getting uh, to kind of see how well those investments are working on iOS devices, because I think that's been another sort of interesting point. It's not necessarily that ATT has meant advertising on those devices hasn't worked without the identifier. It's that you've not really got a way to verify that. Um, and so you've seen a lot of advertisers trying to really kind of figure out kind of what that means uh, for their investments. Um, kind of moving forward and I think you saw you started to see that right due to some of those difficulties the market has started to reallocate their dollars away from their target and iPhone users using Facebook for example to kind of Google Android or even Apple search ads you know both areas where you know it's easier to kind of track users and subsequently kind of closely monitor the performance of uh, their kind of advertising 
And I think just on that point, because I know I'm, I'm waffling a little bit, but I think for all of the disruption and upheaval that ATT is causing, you know, some companies have really started to see it, you know, as an opportunity. It's talking to Snapchat, you know, they got hit by it in the third quarter, but they seem to be kind of pursuing a much longer play off the back of it, which is less reliant on kind of building an ads business on the back of the data being traded by uh, Apple's own infrastructure and more about how they can offer an alternative via their own uh, garden. I guess what I mean by that is like, Snapchat talks a lot about, or they're making a big focus on AR enabled commerce, right? And so the thing behind that is, and this came through from an interview we had with their GM for, uh, for kind of Europe recently, that they believe that the more kind of sales that happen in their app, you know, via AR enabled sort of commerce, the easier it's going to be for them to show advertisers how effective their ad dollars are without the need for, you know, the use of an identifier, whether that's from Apple, you know, or Google, given the rumors that eventually they're going to do the same thing with their own identifier at some point. So I think the long and short of it is you just, you know, you're starting to see how influential kind of Apple now is in advertising, right? Like, I think it was since 2017, they've kind of been steadily, uh, best way to say it without getting in trouble, steadily throttling the access advertisers have to kind of its ecosystem, all in the name of privacy. So first there was ITP, you know, which reduced third-party cookie, sort of tracking in browsers. Now ATT does the same, you know, on its devices. And in the future, you know, it's looking like it's going to do the same thing for IP addresses and email addresses. So... You know, essentially, Apple seems to be maneuvering itself between its customers and uh, any sort of third parties when it comes to the app store and services like kind of news and podcasts. And I think kind of to your earlier point about how you're starting to see kind of the impact of, you know, the sort of privacy moves around sort of tracking and identity start to really have an impact on the advertising ecosystem. I think Apple's role as a kind of power broker in the industry nowadays is, is kind of a big big talking point and a, and a massive example slash bellwether of that so michael given you know what seb was talking about and kind of this you know the power broker nature of these walled gardens and also just like how it sounds like the walled gardens are getting even more expensive for advertisers i'm curious to what extent that you know then factored into the media palooza that you covered this year in which we've had a lot of big advertisers with a lot of advertising money saying hey, maybe we want a different media agency. Maybe we want someone else spending our money for us. And I imagine one thing that they could have been using in those pitches is who can get us the most for the least money? Which of you agencies can figure out ways for us to be getting more performance out of Facebook or Google or figuring out these Apple changes without us having to pay even more than we already are? Yeah, well, I, you know, that's certainly what the clients are looking for. Um, I, I find it somewhat ironic that, you know, the media agencies that are winning these businesses at the same time are saying, this isn't about pricing. This is about, you know, putting together the most effective media and marketing <laughs> programs that will, you know, kind of generate the best, the best ROI for our clients. Um, using our data sort, you know, resources that a lot of the, the holding companies have put together sizable data operations to kind of help figure out where to take those marketing dollars. But ultimately it does come down to, can you whittle down the pricing so that playing in those walled gardens and to some degree now the, 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 the streaming connected TV space that is just rapidly getting more and more expensive because of its limited inventory. Where where do you find those bargains in pricing? It's getting harder and harder for those agencies to do that. And I find it interesting that now agencies are, the media agencies at least, are starting to reposition themselves, even in the age of Media Palooza, as, oh, well, we're doing a lot more consulting rather than just buying and planning for these mega clients um, from, you know, the Walmarts to the Mercedes-Benzes to all of those big clients that landed at, at several of the holding companies. So the, the media agencies are now kind of repositioning themselves as doing consulting work 
which competes more directly with those consultancies that four or five years ago started trotting into the media agency world with what they were trying to do. So um, long and short of it is, I don't know if they're going to find that those that pricing abatement that those clients are looking for, but the media agencies are certainly doing their best to say, it's not just about price reduction. It's about all the other things that we bring to the table that will give you a much more robust media and marketing plan. And is that a way for the agencies to try to protect their margins? Because, I mean, we're, what, like a handful of years out from the ANA transparency report where they, you know, this, you know, the trade group that represents advertisers came out and said, hey, these agencies are doing a lot of arbitrage work. They're, you know, taking our money and then going to Facebook or Google or whoever and getting a better deal and kind of pocketing the difference oh, for yeah. themselves. And that- or even getting kickbacks, you know. Um, I, I think that's absolutely what they're trying to do. It, it's, it's a way for them to generate revenue in the face of declining commissions that they receive based on buying and planning. That's such an antiquated element these days. Even even as it remains a very important element these days for what media agencies do for clients, but the consultative work is is a way for them to kind of get generate new forms of revenue um, off of clients that that you know is replacing declining commissions. Michael Subet also mentioned how these you know there's this coalescing going on where the walled gardens are taking greater share of budgets. A lot of the walled gardens also have self-serve ad buying tools. And so is that something where the agencies are also having to respond to the fact that in addition to the in-housing trend of the past few years, handful of years, that it's just easier for so many of these advertisers to be doing their own buying that it you know, at this point the agencies are still having to react to that? Or is that has the in-housing trend and the fact that um, this consolidation has happened on the sell side, like Seb, you know, mentioned around the coalescing because of what's gone on with tracking. Is that kind of something that the agencies have already had to account for? I, th- I think agencies already are accounting for it because they felt the impact of this for a few years. And um, the, uh, you know, I, I also think it's why they're getting into more of that kind of consultative work that gets away from, um, the investment work that they had been doing, um, that I think clients are now more, you know, taking in house more. But one factor in all of this that I observe just from speaking to all the, uh, you know, I, I try to be in touch with all the holding company media agency networks is most of the investment officers, the chief investment officers still come from a traditional media background. And I think that still colors and and influences the way and what they buy um, on behalf of clients. I, I and I think we've seen it in the the video marketplace where you know despite all the problems that linear TV still has, it still is a huge uh, attraction for for many many marketers. And now the kind of the the video streaming space and even the digital streaming space is still an attraction because I think you see a lot of these chief investment officers that still came up through the TV marketplace. Um, and I think that has more of an impact and an effect on where marketer dollars get spent than than I think a lot of people realize. Right. That makes sense. Although I, then it is interesting because, you know, then you have folks like Christian Jewell, who's running Group M, comes from the Essence side. Matt Sweeney, who's um, chief investment officer at Group M, who's coming from Zaxis, which is the other you know programmatic, programmatic arm. And so they're like taking something of a different lens, even when it comes to TV and streaming, compared to you know what they were doing you know previously when it was Ari Blumen and uh, Lyle Schwartz over there. So what's interesting about like what's going on with the agencies and the consulting firms is it it seems like it's yet another example of this trend that's kind of going on across media and advertising of. You have all these old dogs showing that they can learn new tricks. We have, you know, a few years ago, there was the New York Times 
innovation report where they were just like, look, BuzzFeed's about to eat our lunch if we don't figure out digital. And it turns out New York Times was able to figure out digital and BuzzFeed's been having a harder time of it kind of moving into the New York Times echelon and now being a public company. We've had Disney say, okay, we need to figure out streaming. Otherwise, we're really going to lose out because we can't bank on traditional TV and theatrical film for being the lifeblood of the company forever. And they've kind of figured that out as well. And it seems like in this case, we have these agency holding companies that saw what the consultancies were doing and kind of innovating on their business models. And the agency's holding company said, all right, we could do that too. Yeah, that's it. Like, I think pretty much answered the question for me. But I think, yeah, like, everything from remuneration models right the way through to kind of services, agencies sort of took a you know, really kind of long, hard look at what wasn't working and what clients kind of needed and, and sort of adapted, right? Like, I think you saw that come through in the media police kind of three years ago um, when there was a big focus on kind of remuneration. I think you know, agencies will argue <laughs> behind closed doors as to kind of whether or not, you know, clients really wanted innovation on that part, but agencies definitely adapted. Um, and I think at the same time, you also saw agencies innovate on the in-housing model, right? There was a lot of talk about how that was going to sort of upend the kind of agency model where some of the largest advertisers attempted to do more marketing in-house. And, you know, if anything, it's kind of helped grow their kind of businesses um, even more, right, with regards to agencies helping clients do more marketing in-house, but then also, you know, really building propositions around kind of hybrid models, you know, where agencies sort of take on a lot of the heavy lift sort of tasks and, you know, the client effectively sort of handles more of the sort of strategical kind of planning side of things. Um, and I think this media police, you're starting to see that, play out again with regards to the agency setting up, you know, e-commerce sort of offerings and adapting to the fact that, you know, retailers are becoming kind of media owners in their own right, right? And how do they help sort of clients kind of navigate that? So to your point, like the, you know, the, the kind of holding companies were very astute in working out what, figuring out what the consulting firms were sort of trying to do um, and innovated rapidly on that. I think the consulting models, the, sorry, the consulting firms didn't necessarily kind of do the same. And I think arguably, I wonder kind of how much of a priority it ever was for those companies really anyway. Um, when you think about kind of how big those businesses are and kind of, you know, how small the advertising kind of part of that is within the sort of broader sort of companies, I think, especially from talking to sort of some of the kind of pitch management consultant um, kind of that are seeing how these, com these companies sort of play out and seeing how the consultant firms are sort of pitch themselves to clients. There is an argument that maybe the consultant firms realise that potentially the juice just isn't necessarily worth the squeeze when it comes to going head to head with these um, holding companies, particularly for the larger kind of media reviews. One thing I would like to add to that is I, you know, uh, to, to, I think that's a really good point. Said that it made the juice was might not have been worth the squeeze because consultancies, you know, they, their their job is to go in, figure out what the problem is, offer solutions to their clients, you know, leave a really really hefty invoice, and then walk out and go go to the next client. What media agents or what the agencies do is go in, figure out the problem, and then execute the solution. And I think consultancies are realizing like, oh shit, now we have to execute. And, and that's just not a natural thing for them to do. Uh, and I think it's kind of what's helped agencies restore a little bit of balance. And I don't mean to sound like I have Stockholm syndrome with you know uh, the, the holding companies that I cover, but I do think that their advantage was they were in the business of solving problems through marketing execution for their clients. And I'm not sure the consultancies realize that that's a big part of it. Yeah, like just to add there, like I sort of, when I was reporting out that kind of piece from a couple of weeks ago, one of the more interesting sort of comments from it was something a big, uh, well, a chief media officer, a really big um, sort of CPG sort of business sort of mentioned, said, and he was saying that 
the consultancy firms are really good at theoretical stuff and you know they kind of they get that side of things but when it comes down to you know the nitty-gritty the execution to michael's point the kind of hands-on keyboards actually kind of doing it real life expertise effectively and experience like that doesn't really come through in a pitch and as a sort of kind of marketing he's sitting there thinking you know probably better the devil you know right because you know if i sign these companies out they're just going to effectively farm me out to you know some like somewhere like india or somewhere like that to kind of handle that my actual kind of media buying um and in terms of you know actual getting access to kind of actual sort of experience pedigree you know um that's just not necessarily kind of there or it's just a lot harder to unravel in those big spawning companies not necessarily unravel sorry navigating those big spawning companies um than it is at a kind of agency that's you know more set up to to cater to those needs and, and offer that expertise on tap and that makes sense especially i mean we're still in a pandemic but kind of coming out of hopefully the depths of the pandemic i remember spring of 2020 you talked to anyone on the buy or sell side it's just like we're going with kind of the tried and true partners right now because those are the folks that we trust to get us through this or to work with us through this. And it does feel like there has been something of an entrenchment. Um, and it's, it's hard to know like how temporary or long-term that may be. But Bergie, I mean, we both reported on the upfront negotiations, the TV and streaming um, upfront marketplace this year. And it feels like there was absolutely an entrenchment there that as much as Amazon, Roku, and YouTube like got more money from advertisers this year than in past years and even kind of leveled up into the echelon of the TV networks. The TV networks got even more money than they had in the past and that there hasn't been this upfront overhaul or kind of correction that I know buyers were certainly thinking was going to happen this year. We're hoping to happen, I think, because they wanted to save money. But didn't actually happen this year, right? Well, uh, yes, like 80% yes and 20% I'm still not sure because one thing that happened in the aftermath of the upfront is, um, you know, a lot of cancellation options were exercised and money was kind of then released again into the marketplace. And the networks now have more scatter inventory available than they thought they were going to have because, you know, marketers and their agencies had locked in so much money up front, I guess, to just kind of safeguard for the future. Um, now, at the end of the summer, there was also hope that the pandemic was starting to fade. Now we know it's probably not going to be fading anytime soon. So it'll be interesting to see what happens in 2022. Um, I will give the traditional network owners a lot of credit for moving fast and effectively to create connected TV options, um, you know, whether it's Peacock or Discovery Plus or whatever, um, along with Hulu, that are extremely appealing to a lot of advertisers and their agencies right now. That inventory is somewhat limited, so that's going to create tightness. Um, It'll be interesting to see how these other players from uh, the Rokus to the TV set makers that are now trying to sell inventory as well uh, around this are are going to have an effect on the marketplace. All the prognostications from, you know, Brian Weezer or from Magna seem to indicate that TV is going to be kind of flat to up single digits uh, in 2022, where digital is growing, you know, anywhere from 20 to 30 percent. Um, so I think a lot is still up in the air. Um but, you know, clearly you and I are going to be watching this pretty, you know, uh, pretty closely. Yeah, because, I mean, even in that breakdown, is that just traditional TV or is that including CTV and streaming writ large? It, it, it's hard to know exactly because you read, uh, you know, kind of one agency's prognostications and they'll lump all like digital video together into kind of video. And that's why you that's where you start to see kind of bigger increases and then others will kind of distinguish between traditional TV, which I think is expected to be flat, except for political advertising, which is a going to be a massive boon for local television. I think I did I did I read or hear somewhere that it's like somewhere between seven and eight billion dollars is going to be spent on political advertising in 2022 with like 30 odd gubernatorial races as well as 30 odd Senate races. I mean, and kind of 
politics as a, a, a major kind of both parties are really trying to kind of establish their dominance. So I think we're going to see a ton of money spent there. So I think local TV is going to probably benefit hugely, whether that translates to national, I, I doubt as much. Yeah, I mean, hopefully, you know, the ad market isn't quite as volatile as it was in 2020, because I don't know that any of us can stomach that. And we don't even really <laughs> have stakes in the game beyond being observers and reporting on it. But it does feel like 2022 is going to be pretty volatile between, like, Bergie, what you were saying around the TV cancellations. Although, I mean, some of that money stays with the networks and just moves from like Q4 into Q1 or Q2. Um, but some of it does free up. And then there's everything that's going on with Google and Facebook and ATT that, you know, Seb was talking about. And then, I mean, we're still looking at 2023 being when the third party cookie goes away in Chrome. And so money is going to be moving in 2022 because of that. So <laughs> obviously you all are going to be very busy next year. So folks should stay tuned to Seb and Bergie's reporting. Thanks guys for joining. Pleasure to be here, man. All right. Well, that brings us to the end of this episode of the Digiday podcast. Thank you to everyone for listening. And please don't forget to share this episode with someone who you think would enjoy it. You can even rate us and leave a comment on Apple Podcasts if you like. We'll be back next week with another episode.